As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm just going to talk off the cuff about the recent John Chrysostom episodes as part of the Byzantine Stories series. Don't worry, the next narrative episode is only a couple of days away. But if you haven't heard uh, the episodes about John Chrysostom, then switch off now and come back to this when you've finished. I just wanted to talk about the things that I wasn't able to fit into those episodes. Um, I just, I didn't get to talk about the sources for John's life. I think I mentioned in the um, introduction to creating the episodes that we know more about John than we do about almost any emperor. And when I was reading about him, I mean, I spent day after day reading different points of view from different historians on his life because of the sheer amount of information we have from, you know, biographies written by fans and supporters and, and you know, those from a church background to, you know, pagan historians who are just mentioning him and his exploits as part of the narrative of the life of the empire, down, of course, to all the material um, from his sermons and his own writing. I had trouble keeping it down to four coherent episodes and, and really, I guess it's only three as the first one was really an introduction to try and get the mood of uh, Byzantine stories right. So this is my Dan Carlin style confessional episode just to let you know a few things that I never got to. You know how Dan tends to sum up his hardcore history episodes at the end and talk about some things he was thinking about while he was putting it together. There were lots of things I was excited to read about during my research, which I'm not sure I conveyed in the episodes. I know I wasn't really able to give great examples of why John was such a good preacher. 
Obviously, he spoke about hundreds of Bible passages which weren't directly relevant to the narrative. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, then it would take a lot of context to explain why what John says or how he says it is interesting. The closest I got was an analogy he used describing wealth as being like a thorny plant. It bears no fruit. It is ugly. It injures people and it obstructs other plants from growing. It also feeds the irrational part of your soul. Just as camels are one of the only animals that eat thorny plants, and camels are the grumpiest of animals. Now, he did a lot, a lot better than that, but the idea being that he makes his audience chuckle and hopefully remember this image of a camel eating and then misbehaving, which will stick with his audience and hopefully make them think about the pursuit of wealth when they remember the camel. I also hoped to draw out some insights into the way that Christianity began to become the culture of the Roman Empire rather than just its religion. I think this is one of the hardest things for us to look back and understand fully. When John became a priest, he learnt about the management side of church life. He complained that because Christians didn't give enough, the church was forced to own farms, houses for rent, carriages for hire, pack horses and mules, and that priests were forced to neglect the care of souls in order to carry out these tasks. So, for some people in Antioch, and of course this would be replicated all over the Roman world, the church might be your employer and your customer, as well as your place of worship. Similarly, you can see from that how Christianity became infected by very worldly concerns. It would be easy for greedy men to enrich themselves, all the while claiming they were doing the Lord's work, or gathering alms for the poor. I know some of that came through in the narrative with the nasty competitiveness of Theophilus in seeking power and influence despite being an archbishop. But I didn't manage to weave the issue of heresy into that. Uh, Obviously, we begin our story with the Arians, and you get a hint of how one regime supported them and then the next banned their practices. In many cases, this really was a doctrinal issue and about uh, what the emperors personally believed. But you can see how easily this could be abused and used for political purposes to curry favour with one group or threaten to oust another. And this is what seems to have happened with the tall brothers, the monks who Theophilus exiled from Egypt. He accused them of a particular type of heresy, and whether he really believed it or not, he used it as a stick to beat them with. By turning an argument about Jesus' nature into a political issue, men like Theophilus set terrible precedents for the future. As we know, the divide over the Monophysites was never handled well or dealt with with intellectual compromise. It was often just a blunt political argument, and Christians who feel persecuted tend to dig in rather than reconsider their beliefs. I think the sheer amount of violence in the story is pretty interesting. I haven't studied earlier Roman history in depth, so I don't know if the number of riots and disturbances we see here is uh, normal. Uh, 
I know it's not unusual, but we tend to think of Roman government as logical and reasonable, and to see how much emotion and anger existed all the time makes you reconsider. That's why I decided to include the analysis of the condition of Antioch's poor, to hear about the vulnerability and unpleasantness of that life makes it easier to understand the regularity with which people turned on their own city and presumably, at times, on their own neighbours. There were also nasty bits of retribution taken on John's friends and supporters once he was exiled, which I wasn't able to include in the story. Hopefully you got enough of a sense of this through hints of what happened to friends of Gainus or Eutropius after they fell. You were either in power or you were out, and if you fell, those associated with you could tumble hard. It could be very cruel and unjust. Practically, I was also interested in what it was like for outsiders coming into a new city. It must have been very hard for men like John or Rufinus or Gainus, who had not been to Constantinople before, to suddenly take up an important position there. There's definitely a sense of Ned Stark about their experiences. John knew Antioch so well and really flourished there, but when he transferred to the capital, he alienated almost everyone he dealt with professionally. Only his brilliance in the pulpit saved him from being a disaster, and even that could not stop his exile. I did wrap up the story reminding you that one bad emperor can make a difference. And when we hear about the horror of Caligula and Nero, we should remember how few real threats the empire faced at that time. Whereas when Romania was in serious danger around 400 AD, you had Honorius and Arcadius in power, both allowing the factions around them to tear each other apart and make the situation worse. I also wanted to mention that this story will hopefully set the stage nicely for future Byzantine stories. I hope I can explore a little more about Alexandria and the church there, uh, as well as life out in wilder places like the mountains and the wilderness that John went to. Many of our sources for daily life in the empire come from the biographies of monks or holy men. So John's time on Mount Silpius will hopefully orient you uh, to the conditions uh, that will prevail in other stories about that life. Finally, uh, do let me know what you thought about these episodes, what you'd like more of and what you did or didn't enjoy. I'm dependent on the sources we have, of course, for finding these stories, so don't expect such intimate portraits every time. But do drop me a line at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com and tell me what you thought. I hope you did enjoy the episodes and learned something about the realities of daily life in the Empire. That's what I'm aiming this series to do. For now, let's get back to the narrative. And thank you so much to all of you who bought the episodes.